0: 2014 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 Faith Forward gathering, which was held in Nashville, Tennessee. On May 19th through the 22nd of that year, hundreds of conversation partners from across the globe and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to question, share, and be inspired to reimagine ministry with youth and children. This podcast episode features Bonnie Miller McLemore's presentation at this gathering. Which she titled Christian Constructions of Children and Youth Gift, Task, and Agent.
1: Several years ago, we attended a congregation where the youths, as in many of our churches, had slowly gravitated to the front left row. And that morning, a youth minister was preaching. And the usual number of teens, a more than usual number of teens, were clustered there at the front. And since my own sons were drifters in my own congregation, wanting to sit with their friends more than me, imagine that, I could guess just how much these kids admired and loved their minister and how well she knew and loved them. And yet. When she delved into the text for the day, she spoke right past the people she knew best. She didn't turn towards them. She didn't lift up their hardships and joys. In fact, she almost rendered them invisible, as so many of us, all of us, do. Although I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I remember wishing that she had done something truly revolutionary, and ignored the adults, and preached to the youth. Now, I might not have noticed. Um, I meant to actually show this. They had a pew of their own, much like Virginia Woolf's a room of their, her own. I might not have noticed, except I have birthed and raised three boys, Um, sometimes (laughs) now in their 20s. (laughs) And as my gracious introduction said, really focused a lot of my research and teaching on the study of women and children, as groups often ignored, misunderstood, and stereotyped. In fact, for both women and children, we tend to both idealize these groups and devalue them all at the same time. My mission then and now has really been to render kids visible as fully human with needs for protection and greater inclusion. For a while, I think the church has often stood quietly by, the wider culture, has filled in today's picture of what kids are and what they need. And this morning, what I want to do is first examine what I see as sort of four, quickly, but four problematic portraits of children. Kids as innocent, kids as commodities, consumers, and burdens, and then three contrasting ways that we might reimagine them through a revitalized Christian perspective. Now, even the idea that cultural images of children have evolved over time and place um, is a new and important insight. For me, the art historian Anne Higanay really brought this message home. Her book, Pictures of Innocence, provides a very vivid portrait of how Western society's ideas of children have evolved over time. And they've really changed from sort of a pre-modern image of adult-like children to what she calls the romantic child to, in the last recent years, the knowing child who blurs a sharp distinction between adults and children and kids. She contrasts this kind of colonial uh, representation of children um, it mostly here pictured in the upper class, wearing grown up fashions and adopting these kind of regal stances with hands on hips and one leg extended, designed to indicate their future adult status. With 18th century portraits of children, um, endearing soft images of this naturally innocent child. This, what she calls romantic child, endows children with an almost celestial goodness, pure and unsullied by worldly corruption, innocent, even sacralized. Um, And she says that this image simply did not exist before the modern era. Now, although Higgino thinks that the era of the romantic child has ended and been replaced by today's knowing child, I'm less sure. The problem with the construction of innocence is that it has led adults to see children as cute, but less often as capable, intelligent, or desiring individuals. Innocence allows us to picture kids as passive, trivial, and even, unfortunately, available to adult objectification and abuse. Equally problematic, the romantic child defines children in terms of what adults are not. Not sexual, in Higone's terms, not vicious, not ugly, not conscious, not damaged. This absolute distinction between adult and child ignores the complexities of childhood, and it especially strands adolescents, as if they should metamorphose, automatically overnight, from child to adult, and spare us the difficulties. Three Other damaging images grow out of the economic sphere. Kids as commodities, consumers, and burdens, or what ethicist Todd Whitmore has described as a threefold anthropology of unrestrained capitalism. As commodities, kids are used as means to some other end. Whitmore sees this as particularly prevalent with reproductive technologies where children become an investment from which parents expect a return in the form of a quality child, in his words. But I also see it in mundane family life. While I was working on my book, Let the Children Come, I became especially troubled in my own life and the lives of those I saw surrounding me by what I describe as a middle-class obsession was securing our own children's success with hardly a thought for other children. And equally paired with this, the extent to which we were using our children's accomplishments in soccer or math or violin to somehow feel better about ourselves, it seemed as if modern psychology was doing a good job describing how narcissistically immature parents are using kids to meet their own needs for achievement or for self-assurance. So children must succeed in school or competitive sports because we need the emotional gratification. Capitalism has also defined children's values as consumers. The U.S. corporate world has turned kids into a retailer's dream. It has even coined the term tweens for this new group uh, between 8 and 14. That is, for them, a multi-billion dollar market. Businesses have created an entire consumptive world of products that surround children, often driven by television advertising, where the shows and movies are coupled with products or the program itself is the commercial. And finally, probably the most troubling image from this capitalistic anthropology is this view of children as burden. Estimates of the expense of raising a child make regular headline news. Several years ago when I was working on this project, An editorial cartoon, I wish I could have found it, appeared in the daily news showing two parents sitting at a table holding a newspaper with the headline Cost of Children, $250,000. They looked at their slouching teenager then back at each other and remark, seems our investment's taken a downturn. (laughs) But such a public pricing of children and kids as a major family liability really is a relatively new phenomenon. But this economic schema in which uh, that reduces everything to its cash value has real problems in relationship to kids. It creates a two-tier division between those who have the wherewithal to produce and consume and those who do not, and kids are immature and outside the economy and are especially vulnerable, unable to produce or consume, they ultimately become a burden. So what I really want to get to is what countervailing or what contradicting understandings can we find in Christianity? Unfortunately, Hallmark has trivialized one of the primary convictions of the Christian and Jewish tradition children as gift, by trivializing it. uh, And for Christians, calling kids gift does not mean waxing starry-eyed and dreamy about them, as our culture has led us to believe. But unfortunately, I think this rose-colored lens has even tainted our ability to read the passages in which Jesus welcomes children. Even searching online for an image of Jesus and the children You'd be surprised how the pictures uh, are just glossy, romanticized portraits. If we look at the biblical scholarship, we discover that we have wrongly associated this phrase, receiving as a little child, with qualities like purity, simplicity, receptivity, humility. And certainly, both Matthew and Luke do refer to humbling oneself. But the Greek term to humble has been misread, just as an emotional or sentimental term, when in actuality it has political and economic meanings. Power And and it refers to powerlessness or to social insignificance. And power and significance is precisely what children lacked in the Greco-Roman world. They were almost entirely at the mercy at the head of the household. The free adult Roman male set the standard. And children were, by comparison, seen as deficient, immature, and irrational. The very notion that the disciples and others should recognize children as equal persons in God's sight was entirely foreign. In fact, children were, in the words of a biblical scholar, Judith Gundry Wolf, the least valued members of society. So, the imperative to receive the kingdom like a child in Mark 10, we must read it in light of the imperative to receive children literally in Mark 9, in their inferior and vulnerable social status in the first century world. Children were represented another group like the poor or women who were marginalized and dominated by more powerful people. They were models of discipleship precisely from this position as the least in family and society. Jesus actually intercedes on their behalf and he grants them almost divine status. But he's not just using children as examples, he asks his followers to attend to children literally. In what one biblical scholar describes as a demonstrative action, he is described as taking children up in his arms. Judith gundry equates this to a stereotypical female movement, that he was using a low status activity of women's work as an example for his male disciples and thereby turning social hierarchies upside down. In fact, he was redefining the care of children as a mark of greatness. Of course, Jesus did not come up with this out of thin air. He was speaking from his tradition as a Jew. And Jews were somewhat distinct from the Greco-Roman world in recognizing children as an essential part of God's blessing. This is evident in stories in Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, or Hannah in Samuel. And Jesus knew well the commandment in Deuteronomy to teach the love of God to your children um, when you are away, when you lie down, and when you rise. Kids represented in this tradition not only a promise, sign, and guarantee of the covenant, they were participants in it to be included in religious observances and routinely brought into the rich practices and beliefs of the love of God and neighbor. To call children gift also means accepting responsibility to care for them as task, a second Christian reconstruction that's shaped especially by feminist theology. If kids are gift, wholly unearned, They are ours only in trust, in Whitmore's words. And they come from and ultimately return to God. This limits our power over them. And it forbids that we use them as means to other ends. It also emboldens and requires us to care for them properly. It's high time that Christians and the wider society recognize child care for the labor that it requires. Feminists have made us well aware of this. They have legitimately demanded that society and fathers bear more of the economic and emotional responsibility, and they have called for a revaluing of this domestic labor. In so doing, feminists challenge modern idealizations of children as easily malleable and of nurture as something that women innately or easily perform. Long before my own books on children, I urged parents and congregants to grapple with the necessity of sharing domestic responsibility as justly as possible in households and congregations. Injustice in the mundane distribution of chores, whether in the family or in the congregation, breeds a wider injustice. That is, if a child's first and formative example of adult interaction is one of unequal altruism and one-sided self-sacrifice, I'm just using the words of a political scientist, Susan Moeller-Oken here, then they learn not to expect justice in the wider society. It is within the family, Susan Moeller-Oken argues, that we have our first lesson in moral behavior. On the, on the one hand, children do not need or benefit from the kind of unconditional self-denying or self-sacrificing love that Christianity has raised up as the ideal but often foisted only on mothers and women. But on the other hand, children need more caring labor than many people recognize. Only in industrial and urban society has the job gone to the mother alone. The most unusual pattern of parenting in the world and in the history of our our civilization. In the course of human history, others within the wider social group have always assisted mothers, what anthropologists have come to call aloe care. Congregants and congregations are a primary place to foster this kind of other mothering, a term that African-American communities have used for the, cru- the crucial role of fictive kin. Christians have a mandate to model this kind of shared responsibility beyond biological lines. We testify this in, to this in baptism, baby dedications, and for some traditions through serving as godparents. We proclaim the church as a new family, and we testify to our own adoption into the household. These kinds of testimonies represent more than ethereal wishes. They are really a pledge to material labor. Finally, kids as agents. This brings me back to Higanay's new image of knowing children, where she argues that we are in the midst of a major reconstruction of childhood on the same order of magnitude, she believes, as that which occurred in the shift in the 18th century from the construction of adult-like sinful children to their portrait as innocent. In place of the ideal of innocent children, the knowing child calls into question children's psychic and sexual innocence by attributing to them consciously active minds and bodies. More than anything, the more realistic, less romanticized knowing child presents us with a less simple alternative, mixing together attributes that we've previously separated, um, sexual, moral, and spiritual. As Higanay remarks, children are as much about difficulty, trouble, and tension as they are about celebration, admiration, and passionate attachment. And this confronts us with many more challenges as well as many more pleasures than any ideal or construction of childhood has done before this. How do we walk this fine line between recognizing children as agents or as participants, while also taking responsibility for their nurture and protection? I want to talk about this immense need to and complexity of welcoming kids by concluding with two stories. The first one focuses on the need to welcome kids as agents. Several years ago, on an elementary school field trip to a 4-H agricultural center, I listened as a woman explained agricultural and dairy production on a farm in bygone years to two classrooms of three third grade children. She displayed an antique butter churn and several other implements that were used to get the butter from cow to table. And she turned to the third graders and said, who do you think churned the butter? She was met by a blank spare, stare. So she gave them a hint. Do you have any chores? This was of no help. <laughs> <laughs> no was the resounding chorus of about 58 to nine year olds. In the distribution of farm labor not that long ago, she explained to them, children close to your age, she said, churned the butter. That these contemporary children seemed, said no, it may seem like a small matter. But in actuality, it represents an historical and cultural sea change of major proportions in children and youths agency, about which we should all be concerned. Children need to contribute to the welfare of the family and the congregation by sharing in its labor. Now the complexity. As our three boys grew, we purchased a new round dinner table that could accommodate five of us. Two of the chairs had arms. The others did not. One night at dinner, and we were shifting the places so the kids The odd kid out didn't have to be at the leg, so the kids were moving around. Adults got to stay with the chairs with the arms. You got the picture. So one of my sons asked, hey, why do you two get the arms with the chairs? I mean the chairs with the arms and the leg room. Well, I can't quite capture the gist of our response, but it went well beyond chairs to a larger conversation about the roles and relationships that tried to address the complexity of adult responsibility and kid agency. So first, the responsibility. We're the adults, we said. But this sounded a bit like, because I said so. So we went on. We are more responsible for your well-being now than you are for ours. And we hope this changes eventually, gradually. We generally, although not always, have more experience, knowledge, expertise. The chairs with the arms are a small sign of our temporary transitional authority and privilege. Yet. Here's the agency. The table is round. The heads of the table at which we parents sit are really only marginally at the table's head. And we are trying, we said to them, to empower you in appropriate ways. We try to regard you with respect. We want your participation as far as you're capable in the decisions that affect your bodies and minds. So even in small ways, how you sit at the table with your kids how you talk with them, how you distribute chores and church duties, I invite you to welcome kids as gift, to share justly to the task of their care, and to grant them agency through a gradual, incremental transfer of power and responsibility appropriate to their capacities. Thank you.
0: this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations Copyright. The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinus. Stay tuned for more episodes of the 2014 Faith Forward podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net and join us in Chicago for the 2015 Faith Forward gathering April 20th through 23rd.